kids, you guys that are pre-K through first grade, who want to head toward Elevate, toward Kids Church, you guys can go that direction. If you are a guest of ours and you have a pre-K through first grader with you and they would like to go to a children's church time, if you would go with them their first time, that helps out our volunteers who are over there. Um, there's never any obligation that they go, never any requirement, but it's a great opportunity for them to do Bible story and games um, and for you to be able to have this time to, uh, to study God's word with us here. So I want you to do what works best for you in that situation. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 in, in your Bible, we are continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount, and this study is going to take us up through the end of May, so leading up to the summer and vacation Bible school, but we're going through the, through the Sermon on the Mount together as a church. Let me prepare you for the end of our service today. Uh, at the end of the sermon, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, being a spring break week, and we have a lot of people out on mission trip and things like that, we wouldn't have always done this this week. But the purpose and the meaning behind the Lord's Supper and the way that it connects with the scripture that we're going to study today, we just needed to put those two together. And, and I think you'll see the way that that works at, at the end. And so we're going to be able to take the Lord's Supper together. And after we do that, We'll stand up and we'll sing a final song together and then during that final song we'll pass around the offering plates as an act of worship of giving back to the Lord. And if you're one of our guests and you have a prayer card or a guest information card, you can put that in the offering plate during that final song. So I want you to know, um, if you're a guest of ours, to know where we're going this morning, that that will be your opportunity to respond to God's word through the Lord's Supper and through that final song and giving. And then let me just say as clearly as I can, after the service is over, the response to God's word continues. We will be down here at the front, and we would be honored to pray with you. You may be sitting here with a story just like Eric earlier, and you say, I need to put my faith in Jesus Christ. I need to be baptized to show people what God has done in my life, his grace and mercy in my life. Please come and talk to us. We will have people here to speak with you after that final psalm, and we'd be honored to do that. We're not in any hurry to leave uh, at, at that time. We want to be able to do that together. Let me show you a quick slide before we read these verses, just so we'll all be on the same page, especially if you're jumping into the middle of this with us. The way the Sermon on the Mount works is the first section that runs from verse 3 down through verse 16 is establishing who are the people of God? Who are those who follow Jesus? What kind of people are a part of Jesus' kingdom? And so those who are blessed for living a life that doesn't match the world around them, those who are going to be salt and light in the world, so that's established. Then in verses 17 through 20, which is what we're doing today, there's this key kingdom connection passage. This is a passage that is crucial to understanding the whole New Testament, to understanding the ministry of Jesus. So all of this is right here in these verses we're looking at this morning. Then it leads into how do you live as part of the kingdom? And so we'll work through that. And then the final part of the sermon is why does this matter? And the reason it matters is because there's a way that leads to life and there's a way that leads to destruction. And those who are a part of the kingdom will lead or will go down the path that leads to life. And so this is the way the Sermon on the Mount is set up. So I want you to know this morning, 
We are at the key central proposition, the key central connection of how God's kingdom fits together through Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I know when we come together like this on, on a Sunday morning, God, we come looking for answers from you. God, we want, don't want to know what someone else might have to say about an issue. God, we want to know what you have to say to us through your word. And Father, this morning, as your word is centered so clearly on who Jesus is and what he came to do, God, I pray that our hearts and minds and eyes will be focused on him. God, I pray that our faith would grow, that our desire to obey and live as your people would grow. And God, that if there are those this morning who have never trusted in Jesus Christ, never looked to him as the fulfillment of all that you were willing to do in the world and in a person's life, God, that they would look to him for hope and salvation today. God, that you would do that work in our lives. God, we thank you for our mission team that's in Houston, for so many students and adults who are there. God, that you would work in their lives. God, thank you for those who have the opportunity to travel on vacation this week with spring break. Those who are watching online with us now, God, that even where they are, that you would draw their hearts to Christ and that they would respond in faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week, uh, Dr. Bobby Kelly, who was here from OBU, he got to bring his idol uh, from, from Ephesus. So uh, I don't know if you would call this an idol. It has the potential to be so, but uh, I love baseball, especially this time of year. Uh, and a day like we have outside, man, my desire to... Uh, to be playing baseball is, is really high, uh, especially hearing that we're going to have an old man softball team uh, at Emmaus this, this spring. Pretty excited about that. Get to break out the glove and, and, and do that together. So I love baseball. I was reading an article um, and heard a podcast this, this last week as well about this. There is an independent professional baseball league, minor league baseball league, not a affiliated with Major League Baseball, but a league called the Atlantic League. And the Atlantic League, this independent league, is this next year trying out some new rules uh, for baseball. The size of the base, which has been standard, I think, as long as the game has existed, they're going to make the base bigger, supposedly, to, uh, to speed up the game. They're going to move the pitcher's mound back two feet, so it's always 60 feet, six inches. That's how God designed it, and they're going to move it back two feet. Uh, no mound visits from the catcher out to the pitcher. 
Why even have a catcher and a pitcher if you're not going to be able to talk during, during the game? Uh, they're going to start using uh, robotic umpires, essentially. Now, this isn't so bad, uh, maybe, but uh, they're going to have a radar computer-designed strike zone for calling balls and strikes. There's a part of me that says, that's not even baseball. <laughs> like, so frustrated that you would go and change rules like that. Because baseball as much as anything, appeals to the traditionalists. Those who say, this is how we've done it, this is how the game is to be played, and this is how you're going to continue to play the game. Why would you change the rules like that? Well, guess what? Change is always hard. I mean, we're in a church. Who struggles with change more than those who who are part of a church? You think about how hard it is for for things to develop. The tension between first-generation and second-generation immigrant families, immigrant families or native families who are trying to hold on to their culture and their language and their traditions, and then here comes this younger generation along that's trying to change things. A church culture where people are trying to hold on to their language and their culture, and their traditions, and here comes this younger generation trying to change things? Here's the question. How much can you change something and it still be the same thing? How much can you change something and it still be the same thing? In philosophy, there's this famous thought experiment about the ship of Theseus, this ship that is parked in this harbor, and it begins to deteriorate. And so they begin to change the ship out one board at a time. You replace a board on the ship with a new board. And then you replace another board and another board. And the thought experiment is, is that the same ship? When you begin to change something, when you begin to replace it with something, are you still talking about the same thing or are you talking about something different? Here's where the Gospel of Matthew is so helpful. Because the Gospel of Matthew is located at the very hinge of the Old and the New. (laughs) The Old Testament transitioning to the New Testament set there in the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew is all about this tension between Old and New. How much of the Old remains and how much of the New has come and is it the same thing? Are we talking about the same thing? Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, there's this little verse packed in to the middle of Matthew. If you guys can bring up Matthew 13, 52, there we go. It's not in the passage we're studying this morning, but there's this little verse packed into the middle of Matthew that some people think is a reflection of the author of Matthew. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Just because something is old doesn't make it bad. Just because something is new doesn't make it right. Neither does it make it bad either. The scribe brings out what is old, what needs to be preserved, and what is new, what needs to be introduced. You think about the way the Gospel of Matthew works. Starting with this genealogy that's all about reaching back into tradition, all about reaching back into the pages of the the Old Testament, but the whole genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is designed to point where? To Jesus. You think about the role of Moses in the book of Matthew that we've talked about over and over. Moses is symbolic of the old 
But who does Moses point to? Jesus, over and over and over again in Matthew. Matthew, multiple times, will talk about how the scriptures are being fulfilled, how? Through Jesus. There's this tension of old and new. And we're going to look at this tension in Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to ask the very specific question, how does that apply to our church, and how does that apply to our lives? So back to Matthew chapter 5, and this bath's going to be very tempting for me right here, so I'll try not to, try not to pick it up. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. Now, as we're thinking about this idea, and we're going to talk about the word abolish here in just a moment, but what is Jesus referring to when he mentions the law and the prophets right here? Law and prophets is a way of summarizing all that has come before. The Hebrew Bible, what we might call the Old Testament, Sometimes it's divided into two parts, the law and the prophets. Sometimes it's divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Prophets and writings are sometimes combined. But the idea is everything that's come before. Now here's the interesting thing. If you have your Bible open and you have access on, on your phone, law or prophets is introduced here in verse 17. That same phrase is repeated later in chapter 7, verse 12, at another transition point. So the way that this sermon is put together is law and prophets introduces this key central section and then that same phrase is used again in chapter 7 to say and now we're wrapping up that section and we're going to move to the conclusion. So everything in between is meant to rotate around this idea of law or prophets. What's Jesus talking about there? I put a slide up here for each of those so we could kind of all be on the same page and this is just good foundational biblical theology review. What does it mean when you read the Bible and you see law or prophets? The word law is sometimes used to talk about the first five books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. From Genesis to Deuteronomy is often talked about as being the law, the law that was given through Moses. But here's my encouragement to you. When you see the word law, Don't think first of a lawyer, and don't even think first of commands. But when you see law used in the Bible in reflection of what God has done in the Old Testament, creation, character, covenant. So when you see the law of God, it's God's work in creation. Because remember, before the law is given in the Old Testament, you have the creation of the world. And both the creation of the world and the giving of the law are meant to reveal the character of God. So when you read the law in the Old Testament, it's not just supposed to be a list of boring rules. It's a revelation, an unveiling of God's very character. So God creates, God shows us who he is, and God establishes a relationship, a promise. The people didn't see the law as something that was imposed on them like it was a bad thing. This was a gift. The law meant God is our God and we are his people. This is covenant language. This is good news for the people that God has shown us himself and he's shown us how to live. So Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of that. Creation, God's character, God's promise to his people, all of those things are still important. When you think about the prophets, 
Dr. Kelly, last week, talking about the book of Revelation, did a little bit of this work with us. But when you think about the prophets, if you guys can jump to that next slide there. There we go. Prophets, in the book of Matthew, Isaiah is huge. Jeremiah is huge. John the Baptist is the transitional prophet from the old to the new. You see that role of prophets. Even in Matthew 5.12, Jesus says they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The early followers of Jesus, the Christians, are compared with the prophets. The role of the prophets was to carry forward and apply the law. So the first five books of the Old Testament, God has given his people his character, his commands, this promise he's made with them. The role of the prophets was to say, and it really didn't matter. (laughs) So you give rules to your kids, or the teacher gives rules to the kids, and then somebody else has to come along and say, and we were really serious about that. This is what it looks like to carry that out. This is what it looks like to live that out. The prophets would confront sins idolatry, the lack of showing justice to people around you, the idea that religion would just be ritual. This is what Eric was referring to in his testimony earlier, that, that when, it, when, we can, uh, when we encounter the character of God, our response to that is not just ritual, it's this deep worship and faith in him. So the prophets came along and said, it really does matter that you follow what God has called you to follow. So go back to Matthew chapter five. If that's the case, Jesus says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus did not come to get rid of those things. Instead, he says, I have come to fulfill them. Do not think Now, that's kind of a strange phrase, do not think. Why would he have to say that? Because people were thinking that. (laughs) Here comes Jesus on the scene as the Messiah sent from God, gathering the people together, except he doesn't play by all their rules. And he does things that really bothers the religious leaders. And he looks very different than what people expected the Messiah to look like when he would come as the rescuer of God's people. So people were thinking, there's no way this guy could be the Messiah because look at how he treats the law. And look at how he talks about the temple. He must be somebody completely different. So do not think that I have come to abolish. What does abolish mean here? It means to destroy, to cancel, to do away with. The idea that when Jesus came, It was like he was inheriting his father's business and he was completely changing it into something else. So God the Father passes along his Chick-fil-A franchise to Jesus and Jesus starts selling hamburgers. Like you can't do that. You've completely changed and destroyed and canceled everything that I gave you and you're doing something different. Jesus says that's not what I came to do. I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. Here's an important point to make at this, at this stage. We have to be very, very careful at this point because often close to the surface in our churches and in our individual thinking is the idea that the God of the Old Testament is opposite to the God of the New Testament. Like there was a God in the Old Testament who was angry all the time and he gave a bunch of rules to the people and he didn't really care about the people. And then Jesus came 
And the God of the New Testament is kind and loving and just wants people to be happy and just say a prayer and everything's going to be okay. This idea that we would pit the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament is so dangerous. It's so dangerous to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's so dangerous to what it means to receive the word of God and live out the word of God as his people. The Old Testament God and the New Testament God are not different gods. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, you don't have to read very far in Matthew to find out that Matthew's theme is fulfillment. That Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the one who sums up, who brings together all that God has been doing up to this point. Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with that. I came to show you what it was all about. Everything that God has been doing has been pointing to me, and I'm going to carry that forward. So don't get rid of your Old Testament. Don't, don't, don't cancel all that God has been doing to this point. Just see how it points to me, because I've come to fulfill this. Now verse 18, if that's true, why does that matter? Verse 18, for truly I say to you, Jesus says, that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not the, not the very smallest letter, not a dot, not the smallest mark, will pass from the law until everything has been accomplished. Jesus says, there's no reason to get rid of the word of God because the word of God is meant to stand. The word of God is how you understand all that I've come to do. In the early church, there was a figure, a, a man known as Marcion. His name was Marcion. Marcion was an early church leader who said, you know what, we can get rid of the Old Testament. We really don't need the Old Testament. In fact, it gets in the way of understanding who Jesus is. And while we're at it, we should get rid of almost all the Jewish elements in the New Testament. So by the time Marcion was finished, there wasn't much of a Bible left. <laughs> because once you get rid of the Old Testament, and once you get rid of all the Jewish elements in the New Testament, th there's not much that remains. Um, it's not unlike what Thomas Jefferson did in his own Bible as he cut out the passages that he didn't feel like still applied or he cut out the miraculous parts. When you start cutting out parts of the Bible to leave others, you're in very dangerous territory because Jesus says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until everything has been established and God establishes the new creation, until then, not the smallest part is going to pass away until everything has been accomplished. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says, everything that scripture has been pointing to in me, when I speak, that will carry forward. You can trust that, it's not going away. Verse 19, so don't cut the Old Testament out of your Bible, that's what we're saying. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes or sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now we haven't talked about this, but this is a helpful place to, to point it out. Matthew seems to be writing to two different audiences, and he's trying to bring both of them back to Jesus. There's one audience that says all we need is the law. Just follow the law and everything will be okay. There's another audience that says, you know what? 
we don't really need the law. Just live your life, do what you want, trust in Jesus, everything will be okay. And so on two extremes, Matthew is dealing with a group who says, all we need is just follow the rules and everything's going to be okay. Another group who says, what rules? Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because this is probably how your marriage works. <laughs> this is probably how your family works. This is probably how your kids work. Some people are very drawn to keeping the rules, maintaining the structure. Everything fits into a box. Not always, but oftentimes, this is the first child. Um, then you have others who couldn't find the rule sheet. Or if there were rules, their whole job in life is to tweak the rules or change the rules or go around the rules. This is often the second child and third child and fourth child. Um, not, not every time, but, but often that, that's how it works. You have all we need is the law and who needs the law. And Jesus, as he comes as that kingdom connection, is saying, whoa, 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 watch out for both extremes. Whoever sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, least worthy of understanding what it means for God to guide your life. Second half of that verse, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's this constant connection between saying one thing and making sure that your life matches that. You say it and you do it. That it matters that we live out the word of God. Later on in the New Testament, you'll get a book called James. And in the book of James, it says, don't just be a hearer of the word, but do a, be a doer of the word. This is the idea that Jesus is establishing right here. And I love how this verse points ahead to the very, very end of the book where Jesus gives the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. If we're not careful, all we worry about is the teaching part. My job is to disseminate information. Thanks for being here this morning. If you could receive that information, then we'll go home happy. Jesus says that's not quite how it works. We teach one another to obey, to act. This is God working our life so that we do what his word says. We don't just receive it as, as information. And he's establishing that here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you might read this. You might read these type of verses and say, so are we still living under the Old Testament law? All we need to do is just follow the Old Testament law and everything will be okay. Read verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus is going to say, hang on just a second. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean righteousness here? Is it just the Old Testament law? Well, the word righteousness has already been used twice in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, is our key verse for understanding how the righteousness theme works in the book of Matthew. If you guys could bring up Matthew 3.15, Jesus answered, this is at his baptism. He said, let this baptism be so for now. John the Baptist didn't want to baptize Jesus. He said, there's no purpose for this. But Jesus said, let this baptism happen, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
righteousness in the book of Matthew is God's will being lived out by God's people. That this is what God has designed for us to do. This is what God has laid before for us to do. And with my whole life, I'm going to be faithful to what God has called me to do. This is the righteousness. Joseph, when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, he says, I can just put her away quietly. I'm going to make sure she's treated well and kindly. And it says that he's a just and righteous person. He's trying to treat her well in keeping with the law. The word righteousness here in Matthew chapter 5, it's about living out the will of God as he's put it before the people. That you've given your life to me and you're going to do what I've called you to do. So you go back to verse 20. You go back to verse 20 in Matthew 5. And it says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I realize that it's very hard for us right now to grasp how crazy that verse would have seemed to people who just heard it. Um, So pretend, just for a second, that... You're the second child in the family. And you act a little bit more like the second child in the family. You're not too motivated by the rules. You don't care too much about holding on to the structure or tradition of things. But there's the perfect first child in the family that everybody knows is the parent's favorite because they follow the rules and they stay in the lines and they do what they're supposed to do. And someone looks at you as the second child and says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of your older sibling, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, I can't get through a day without doing something wrong. And there's Mr. or Mrs. Perfect, and they always do everything right. There's no way that I could be better than them. What's Jesus talking about here when he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Well, here's what it's not. It's not about beating the Pharisees and the scribes at their own game. Because you're not going to beat the Pharisees and the scribes at their own game. It's about a deeper, more transformative kind of righteousness that God is calling his people to. When you think about the work of the Pharisees, and we'll talk about this more going through the book of Matthew, but you think about their righteousness. Their righteousness was primarily about public behavior so that others could see them do the right thing, not necessarily what they did in private. It was primarily about external actions, not an interior condition of the heart. So I do the right thing externally, but inside I'm actually rebellious toward the Lord or my heart's not in it. The other thing about the Pharisees is that they were trying to add to the God's law with all these human rules that were added on to the law of God as opposed to following the purpose of God's law that it was given. So what do we have to be careful of? This is not about being publicly more impressive. This is not about making sure that all of your actions or rituals live up to a certain standard. This is not about following a bunch of human rules that somebody else has laid down and said, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. All of that is trying to play the Pharisees game. What this is about is a righteousness 
a righteousness that reflects a life where you have repented of sins and given yourself completely to Jesus. Where you have repented of your way of living and said, I need you to transform my life from the inside out. Because can I tell you something? When you try to beat the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at their own game, it's exhausting. Because you're always going to wonder, how do I, sh- how do I compare to somebody else? You're always going to wonder, how do people perceive me? Do my actions outwardly show myself to be a follower of Jesus, even though inwardly I know my life is a mess? What God wants to do is to bring a righteousness that changes us from the inside out. So what do these verses teach us about church? What do these key kingdom connection verses teach us about our own lives? Here's the first thing. The first thing is they impact what we believe about Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, are foundational for understanding in the New Testament what it means to know and worship Jesus. And you get a little reflection of this in Hebrews chapter 1, later in, in the New Testament. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is the law and the prophets that Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew 5. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And they're not up there, but the next verses after that in Hebrews 1 talk about how Jesus would bring the atonement and the forgiveness of sins. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, is saying that when Jesus comes, he is not just another prophet. And when Jesus comes, he is not just another teacher to show you how to live your life. That when Jesus comes, he comes as the Son of God. He comes as God with us. He comes as the Messiah and the King and the Ruler and the Judge. And so when Jesus comes before us, we don't view him as just another prophet to be received and passed on. We don't receive him as just another teacher for another way to live your life. When you read these verses, you're forced to understand and forced to think about who is Jesus? How do I understand him? How do I respond to him? Because if he is the one who has fulfilled all the scriptures, if he is the one who all of God's plans were pointing to, then he is the one who deserves our very lives. So we repent of our sins and we follow him with everything that we have as he changes us from the inside out. And so if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, We're not putting before you another prophet. We're not putting before you another teacher. We're not asking you to even get your life together. We're asking you that you would turn and give your life to Jesus. Because he has come and he's taken away your sins and he's defeated the power of death and he's calling you to life. Give your life to him. He comes as the fulfillment of all the scriptures and he comes as the fulfillment of all that you would ever need or want. And so he calls us to himself. He calls us to salvation. So these verses, which might strike us in just a very small way as a little boring or very mundane, these verses are a picture of Christ 
and the hope that he provides for his people. Come to him. Give your life to him. Secondly, these verses impact how we read the Bible. These verses impact how we read the Bible. John chapter 5. Jesus gets in one of these arguments with the religious leaders in John chapter 5. Here's the way it works. Jesus says, you search the scriptures, the law and the prophets. You search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There was something in Eric's testimony earlier that was really important. He said, I knew about Jesus in my mind, intellectually, I knew about the scriptures and about Jesus, but it had never transformed my life. It had never taken hold in my heart. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, they knew the scriptures way better than we know the scriptures. Being a follower of Jesus is not about how much information you have in your heart, I mean in your head. It's about whether you've given your life to him, whether you've given your heart to him. So when we read the scriptures, be so careful. Be so careful about reading the Bible just for intellectual knowledge. Treating the Bible like a textbook. Because when the Bible comes to us as the word of God, it's designed to point us to Jesus. And so when we read scripture, we want to read it in that way. Why? Because Jesus said we're supposed to read in that way. Look in Luke chapter 24. All right, if you attend Emmaus, it's important that you know Luke chapter 24 in your Bible because that's where the name of, of our church comes from. When people see our name written down, E-M-M-A-U-S, very rarely do they know how to pronounce it. Uh, sometimes I'll tell them it's like e may us, like the month of May, E May us. Sometimes if you slur it together with your bad Oklahoma, it comes out as a mace. Um, which somebody told me earlier this week, they were saying the name of our church to somebody else and they said, A mess Baptist church? <laughs> Actually, yes, that is exactly what we are. We are a mess Baptist church. Um, so from now on, that's probably the only thing I'll be able to think of when I hear Emmaus is a mess Baptist church. Um, so Emmaus shows up in Luke chapter 24, and Jesus, as he's walking along the road to Emmaus with these two, uh, two people, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As we are reading the Old Testament, we don't want to misread the Old Testament in such a way that we find Jesus hidden behind rocks that he's really not supposed to be hidden behind. He's actually just right out there in the open. So sometimes we can misread it, but here's what I do want to encourage you to do. As you read the Old Testament, as you read the scriptures, we always want to read with a view to how does this point me toward Christ? How does this point me toward who Jesus would be and what he would come to do? So what you do is as you're reading the Old Testament, you're looking for these threads or these themes that lead you to Jesus and what he would do as the fulfillment of all of God's word. At Emmaus, one of the things we're doing together is we're doing a Bible reading plan that we call Route 66. If you are not part of our Route 66 Bible reading plan, 
There are a couple of notebooks left out in the lobby, and then there are a lot of the cards that you can use to follow along in this reading plan. Plus, we have an email that we send out every Monday morning with that, with that Bible reading plan. If you just fill out one of those guest cards and put it in the offering plate at the end, we'll get you connected with that. What we want to do is we read through. We're not skipping the Old Testament. <laughs> we want to read through and say, how does this point me toward Jesus? How is Jesus the fulfillment of all of this? Okay, what I believe about Jesus, how I read the Bible, and then finally the last thing, how I view myself and how I view others. When you read Matthew chapter 5, it reminds us that my standing before God is not how I compare with my friend. <laughs> it's not how I compare with my neighbor. It's not how I compare with any of my family members. I don't look to the side and say, am I better than that person? I look to Jesus and say, have I experienced his righteousness and his transformation? Be very careful about looking to the side and saying, am I better than that person? Jesus will have something to say about that in Matthew 7. He'll say, judge not, lest you be judged. And here's the other thing that these verses do, and this is so crucial for us as a church and how God's put us together. Both the Pharisees and the prodigals need salvation through Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the prodigals need salvation through Jesus. As you think about the way churches are put together, some of us are more inclined in our weak moments to be Pharisees. And some of us, in our weak moments, are more confined to be prodigals and rebels. We need the Pharisees to say, hey, obeying the word of God really does matter. And we need the rebels and the prodigals to say, yeah, but obeying the word of God is not enough. Jesus is so gracious and so merciful. And so when you have a church that is made up of recovering Pharisees and returning prodigals, it is a beautiful thing. And I believe with all my heart that this is exactly what God wants to do at Emmaus. That this would be a church of recovering Pharisees and returning prodigals. And that together we would proclaim and display Jesus. We would say, without him I have no hope. I have no salvation. But Jesus has taught me that there's more to life than rules. And Jesus has taught me that left to myself I will never find anything except trouble. So we all look back to him. And the way we're going to do that this morning is by taking the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to pray for us. And after I pray for us, those who are helping with the Lord's Supper, if you would move to those locations around the auditorium, let me tell you before we do this, that when we take the Lord's Supper at Emmaus, when these plates come around, there are going to be two cups stacked together. Make sure you take two cups together. One has the juice, one has the bread. You'll likely have to twist them a little bit to get them separated, but be sure you take both of the cups. If you are not a follower of Jesus, or you have kids with you who have not yet trusted in Jesus for salvation, there's no shame in passing it to the next person. This is not something we do to earn standing with God. This is a reminder of my hope comes from Jesus. We're reminded of what he's done for us and the hope we have in him. So we're going to have a chance to do that together. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to move into that time. Father, thank you for these verses this morning. The way they connect the pieces of Scripture together for us. God, we are a room full of prodigals. 
and we are a room full of Pharisees, and our hope only comes through Jesus. That Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill and to bring the new covenant. The covenant that would be through his blood and his body. The covenant that would come when our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh through the work of your spirit. And so God, this morning, we take of this Lord's Supper, we take of this juice and this bread to remind us of where our hope lies. Not in keeping the rules, not in getting our own lives together on our own strength, our hope lies in Jesus. God, use this time to remind us of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.